On March 17, 2021, a lone gunman in Atlanta, Georgia went on a racially motivated rampage, killing eight people, six of whom were women of Asian descent. This act of violence against the Asian community is one of the most recent examples of the steady increase in hate crimes and discrimination. In this episode, we will be talking about anti-Asian racism, some of the drivers for the instances in the last 12 to 14 months, xenophobia in the broader context of this pandemic, and how COVID-19 has exacerbated racist sentiments. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Will, your host for this episode, and I'm here with co-hosts LaShawn, Linda, and Gordon. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Public Health Insight stands in solidarity with the Asian community as we mourn the loss. We stand against any and all forms of racism and discrimination. Please also note that this episode may contain sensitive or triggering content for some people. We encourage you to use your discretion when listening to this content and connect to the appropriate supports as needed. As we've discussed many times on this podcast, racism is a public health crisis at its core. And to guide our discussion today, we will hone in on the concept of racism um, in a bit more detail. So as we mentioned kind of earlier, you know, and I think even in our earlier episodes relating related to racism, um, you know, it's it's we made it plenty clear that racism is very much a public health issue. Maybe just as a quick introduction, when you think of racism, um, you know, let's let's try to define or or come to some working definition that we can carry throughout this episode for what really um, really is racism. Because I think it's one of those terms that we all, you know, we we hear it often. We all we all understand what it is, but uh, I mean, I think it's still important to kind of come to some sort of agreement here. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a really good point. I often people may throw around the word racism or racist, and I think at this point it can very much be overused that it, it could either lose meaning or um, we forget what it actually refers to. But for me, I think of racism um, always has a lens of power. So it's it's prejudice, it's discrimination on the basis of race, but there is that lens of a power dynamic that there's a hierarchy. So because you have a different um, like racial background than me, um, I am, am superior to you. And so in the context of North America, at least where we're speaking of, in general, the hierarchy is whiteness at the top and everybody else at the bottom. Yeah, um, that's a really good foundation that you established for us, Linda. I think um, that, that idea of the power dynamics really, I, I, I personally think is really central to this discussion of racism. And, um, you know, for me, when I, when I hear racism, what immediately comes to mind is the idea of othering and, you know, using characteristics, whether it's, um, you know, your, I guess, in, in, in the situation or in the context of racism, you know, that being race, oftentimes by other biological kind of indicators like skin tone, um, you know, fa- fe- facial features, etc., to, like you say, said, create and a hierarchy create a gradient um and then kind of overlapping almost a, a power scale along that gradient right it's and i think that's very much you, you can't you know racism without discussions of power i think it's there there isn't a discussion period mm-hmm. you know, if, if you don't if you don't have that that power dynamic there mm-hmm. 
And mm-hmm. one more thing I think that we can't forget when we talk about racism, and we mentioned this before, is that it's not just on that in, in interpersonal level that when we look at our socio-ecological model, racism exists on so many different levels that it can be even like internalized, and then it can be interpersonal, it can be within the community, and it can be at the level of the institution. And what we have seen, you know, throughout this past year, and even with regards to anti-Asian racism, many people want to say, you know, I personally am not racist, so how can there be racism when, you know, I've never said anything? But the way our institutions are set up too, our systems, um, racism is embedded there. Yeah, exactly. And then just to wrap that up a bit as well, um, even at the policy level, as we'll get to today, there are many ways that this can take form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Great points from, from from all here, and I think you know one of the main reasons why I really felt a need to discuss this topic. Um, you know, I f- I feel that it's it's first off it's it's an issue that's after what happened in Atlanta. Um, it kind of came to you know front lines and became more well known. But the reality is, you know, anti Asian racism isn't you know like an, like a new thing. It's not something that just kind of popped into the scene with covid um and so it's you know there's i think when when we talk about anti-asian racism it's very important reiterate here that this is a, a topic with very deep historical roots and has affected you know communities individuals families and you know comp- you know people for for centuries and the second point i, I want to kind of preface before our, you know we continue our, with our discussion is that you know although we the recent um, news headlines are mostly based in the United States. For example, you know the um, you know, the gunman who you know went on the rampage and killing six Asian women in Atlanta, or the various you know, violence against elderly Asian um, people, in, whether in the in the West Coast or in the East Coast. Um, you know, all despite all these kind of instances being focused in the U.S., it's important for us here in Canada to recognize that anti-asian racism is not is not isolated to the u.s it's not isolated to you know to other countries um and but it's also you know as much prevalent in our own countries in our own in our own communities and i think that's a very important um thing to note because oftentimes when we hear of these tragedies or these you know very disgusting acts it's very easy for us to point fingers and be like oh you know that's that's a their ish that's a them issue it's not, it doesn't affect mm-hmm. us you know we're we're all living here you know in in our utopia not, not having to deal with any of this but i think that's the thoughts like that real is very problematic because it in a way reduces the the i guess the importance of the issue that we're that we're speaking to today so um yeah i just wanted to preface um, by by noting these two things i i think it's also important to mention as we did with the um, anti-black racism episode is that um, when we're talking about this um, I guess anti-Asian racism we can't treat that as a monolithic group so we have to understand that even within that grouping there are many different um, groups such as Chinese, Indian, Filipino, Vietnamese, Korean and uh, there's so many right so um, what we'll also get into in this episode is that when we're when we're looking at this kind of overall cluster we have to realize that classifying them as a huge group also can have damaging effects so just wanted to note that at the beginning mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. it's a very good point with sean and it's a, it's a good preview for what's to come later in the episode um mm. so yeah i think you know 
as we tend to do with, with most, of, most of our topics, um, it's important to always look back in history and kind of see what are some, you know, what kind of led to um, what we're dealing with today. Because, you know, as mentioned, anti-Asian racism, at least in Canada, is not a new phenomenon, right? Even anti-Asian racism in the context of a pandemic is not a new phenomenon. You know, with COVID-19, mm-hmm. yeah, like, you know, I'm sure we all remember um, you know, back in the early 2000s with the SARS pandemic and how individuals who, you know, of Asian descent um, you know, were reported to have been verbally, physically, you know, attacked um, far more um, greater proportion compared to you know, other individuals. And I think we're seeing very similar um, situations nowadays with COVID. So, so it took place um, early last year. So in February of 2020, uh, I was on a train going from Toronto, Ontario to Ottawa, and you know this was let's this was more than I would say, almost twenty, yeah, almost twenty years since you know SARS. And um, for me personally, I haven't you know experienced that the level of overt public racism as I did you know during those SARS times. And um, and it was it was very it took me by surprise because I was on the train and um, you know it was it was right when COVID was starting to. To, to pop up again mm-hmm. you know, to pop up in Canada at least and starting to hit news media and outlets and things like that and there's this gentleman who was seated beside me and he looked at me and you know he waved over one of the train atten- uh, attendants workers and asked to be relocated and the the, the the lady was was kind of confused she's like oh is something wrong is this the incorrect seat and the gentleman straight up said Oh no, you know, with 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 everything going on with this new new virus, you know, you can never be too safe, haha. <laughs> and I, I, honestly, at the at the time, I, I I I hit him back with a very blunt response. You know, I told him that just because you're sitting beside you know a Chinese person doesn't mean you're gonna get the the vaccine. Oh, sorry, doesn't mean you're gonna get the virus. And looking back, it's yeah, it was it was very um, shocking, but also you no, know, not shocking at the same time because it was shocking in that um, no. For someone to to be so publicly, you know, dropping these kind of racist sentiments, um, it was definitely took me by surprise. But it's it wasn't shocking because you know, as as I've experienced you know, throughout my life, um, and you know, as all of you have mentioned earlier, racism comes in many forms, right? And you have those publicly overt, um, like in your face type racists who really scream slurs and like make fun of you, and there you are there are those other individuals who you know, who continue to tap into the system that's already established to be any, um, you know, full of inequalities and discrimination, prejudice, etc. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely um, a, a, tough, a tough topic for sure. And I think I'm glad we were able to, to, to dive a bit deeper into it today. So what are some of those um, historical examples that you're aware of? Yeah, so... The, um, you know, being being ethnically Chinese, um, the the two that really stand out to me is so the first one, um, it, it was known as the Chinese head tax, and it was something that the government of Canada um, implemented in the 18, mm. 1880s, so like eighteen eighty five, and it required that each Chinese immigrant entering Canada be subject to a a fee, um, which is you know which which is why it was coined the the head tax, um, and these fees started out initially at you know, around $50, $50, and eventually rose to as high as $500. And, you know, for us nowadays, it's, you know, if we take out, 
take away all every other all those other kind of factors and just consider the the money amount you know people might think oh you know fifty dollars no, that's not too bad but i think it's you know even just looking at pure economics for, at, at that time um you know five hundred dollars is equivalent to two years wages for your average labor so imagine um you know being being charged like a two the equivalent of two years wages in order to even you know, be considered or yeah to, to, to come and immigrate to, the, to this country um oftentimes you know people don't immigrate for for no reason uh, people you know it's most times people immigrate you know in order to look for a better life or to escape mm-hmm. from some sort of persecution or violence so it's almost like yeah it's like you know here, here come to our country come to our country and then pay us this absurd amount of money um it's i don't know it's just this a part of it just doesn't sit right with me. It could be veiled as, oh, we're simply just trying to, um, I don't even know how could they could veil it, just as a, a normal process of a fee for immigration, but really it's a deterrent. It's we don't want you to come to this country. But it's a, in a way, it shows how sinister mm-hmm. racism can be because it can be veiled under policy, um, but it's actually furthering like a racist mindset. Um, the Chinese Exclusion Act um, that's the law in the United States was kind of passed around the same time in 1882 or 80, 1883. So was that were, were the two kind of related? So it sounds like Canada went the more subtle route of let's put up a, you know, some kind of barrier that likely not many people will be able to overcome. And then the U.S. kind of just flat out banned without any way for, you know, Asians to enter, um, you know, United States to, to, to build any kind of life. Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a very interesting point you raised, Gordon, and it's a, it's a good segue because mm-hmm. actually in Canada, <laughs> um, not long after in 1930, mm-hmm. 1923, um, Canada, we you know we we mm-hmm. implemented our own version of this, known as the Chinese Immigration Act, and um, you know, this lasted from nineteen twenty three to nineteen forty seven, and it was essentially just well, exactly what you like you said, um, you know, banned uh, Chinese immigration, um, you know except for you know certain kind of mm-hmm. exceptions so i think the, the some exceptions were if you were a foreign student uh if you were a diplomat if you had some sort of special clearance given by the government etc but for the vast majority of individuals you know from chinese people um, during this time who wanted to to come to canada um yeah it was you know, the immigration was controlled um and just for a bit of historical context from 1923 to 1947 that was a very um, unstable period in Chinese history. Um, you know, that was mm. periods of war, um, famine, um, social unrest. Um, millions and millions of people died during this time. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, if we look back at subsequent kind of periods of unrest around the world, whether it be, you know, the Korean War or the Vietnam War or, you know, current or, you know, conflicts in the Middle East, um, you know, in Europe or, or other places around the world, Africa, Latin America. During periods like this, you know, it's is common for, um, you know, high high income countries to accept and bring in refugees or you know, you know immigrants who are seeking to escape these <laughs> these these events. But you know, just to me, it just seemed like this period for the Chinese, you know, a, a lot of people could have had the opportunity you know if this act wasn't in place to escape and actually restart their lives but instead you know it's you know you never know countless people end up dying mm-hmm. i would say as as a result of this and 
is also very interesting because this act, you know, in Canada, we've seen periods of where the government has you know, controlled or um, kind of, I guess, placed mm-hmm. um, limits for immigration from certain countries. But the Chinese Immigration Act was the first instance um, where a select nationality of people were mm-hmm. banned completely or mm-hmm. more or less completely. And it was a very targeted policy um, mm-hmm. focusing on Chinese people. And I just want to jump in here too, because you mentioned this is the first instance of a specific nationality being restricted. So that that's a very um, firm statement that we do not want you here. But if we look prior to this, like in the 1800s, late 1800s, um, a lot of Chinese laborers were building our country, building our railway system. They were contributing to building this economy here. And then all of a sudden our government turns around and says, bye. And so to me, that's like, how do you justify that? How... And how could Canadians watch that and and say nothing? And I wasn't around, so I can't comment there. But it just when you look at when you look back in context of what happened before, it just seems so. How could how can how could we be that bad? How could Canada have done something like that when we claim to be such a pillar of human rights? You know. Yeah, and it's it very much you know for me. That idea of, you know, despite the Chinese, early Chinese laborers building the country, it's almost as if, you know, you know those early individuals were never viewed as yeah. human. Yes. In, in a way, yeah. it's like, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're more, you're nothing less than um, a source of right. a manual yeah. labor. And, you know, when one push comes to shove, you know, right. stay out of the yeah. country kind of thing. Yeah. And then at the same time, it's like, why are we surprised? Because... We- this country has been dehumanizing people from time and we mm-hmm. still continue to do that so is there any is there any any you know we're keep in mind we're still in like the mid 1900s and we haven't even made our way mm-hmm. up to recent days so is there anything uh, more recent time um that that you're aware of well um so i wanted to mention um another incident um it was kind of in the early 1900s um and you know because kind of our conversations so far has seemed to be been around uh, you know Ch- the you know, mm. chinese nationals or you know people of chinese descent i wanted to mention um so it was called the uh komagata mm-hmm. maru incident um it's 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 based so it's named after a, a steamship that was like from based in japan and essentially you know, to my understanding, what happened was that um, this ship was carrying around you know, 400 South Asian passengers, um, mainly from India, Pakistan, um, mm-hmm. uh, Sri Lanka area, and they were headed for for Canada. Um, and you know, upon arrival at Canada, they were de- denied entry. And this was also, you know, part of the government of Canada's attempt to restrict immigration from you know what were then known as the British British India. So you know. Um, the uh, Brit- the British British Empire's kind of colony in India, and um, I think part of it was because of you know there was a recent wave of you know, large numbers of people from British India immigrating to various um, countries where and so the governments felt that there was a need to, to really restrict it, and so essentially this this ship was asked to to turn back and go back to India, um, and only allowed around like twenty people to actually enter the country, and. Um, you know, I'm not too sure about what were the actual political kind of factors in play um, in India at the time. But once the, the ship turned back, um, 
there were resulting riots and numerous people um, who were on the ship were either arrested and or died uh, as a result. So it's mm-hmm. it just kind of shows um, it shows a couple of things. It shows one that um, that I guess that is Asians as a whole, mm-hmm. not just East Asians, but also you know South Asians were very much subjected to a lot of this same racism that you know are experienced. And another thing that I think it's it signifies is that um, it's thing. It, a lot of these instance issues work in, in almost a domino effect, right? It's because the boat was not about to come in, um, and I'm sure there are other factors, but essentially, you know, it ha- because it had to get turned around, it ended up resulting in numerous people dying. And it, a lot of these things could have been prevented. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it, there really is. I'm really kind of lost for words to really describe it. It sounds almost like, you know, it's a sim- it's, it actually is this similar mindset with the Chinese head tax or with the Immigration Act. It's again, we don't want you here um, under a veil of policy, you know, whichever excuse they use. Perhaps the people on the ship didn't have, you know, proper, um, had, didn't use the proper channels to come. Who knows what reasons were used? But it's like we're trying to maintain um this country the way the eurocentric um you know majority of the country we do mm-hmm. not want you here and then people mm-hmm. die as a result and um i guess the last example that you know for canada that really comes to mind for me and i'm sure we've all heard about this um you know through history class or whatever other means is um you know the internment of canadian you know, japanese canadians during the second world war um you know it's 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 essentially it's it's as it sounds um between 1990, 1941 and 1949, um, around 90% of you know, all of the, I guess, of the total Japanese Canadian population were sent to internment camps in the British mm-hmm. Columbia interior, um, and you know, businesses were were confiscated, land were, were taken back by the government, and you know it's I don't know I I found I found this um, to be very problematic and just this one of the, one of the examples that really um, signifies anti-Asian mm-hmm. racism in Canada, because it's you know during the war, sure you know we're, we're all aware that the Japanese were um, you know on the on the I guess Axis forces, but you know they weren't the only ones that were kind of the, that the Allies are fighting against. But you know it, what what made it really you know mind-boggling is that they only sent the Japanese Canadians into these internment camps, and through my research, I, I was I was curious. I was like, oh you know. Did they ever, you know, just decide right. to, to round up all the the German Canadians, all the Italian Canadians, and put them in the camps? No, it was like I think very few um, numbers of them were rounded up, if any. And the, the individuals who were gathered were you know, had clear, very vocal affiliation with the you know, mm-hmm. the Nazi Party in the in Canada. And so it's like, you know, if if your justification is that these individuals might have, you know espionage t- uh, ties or you know might be a national security threat then why not just you know wh- it's like I- i'm not i'm not you know promoting it, but it's like why not actually kind of follow your reasoning and round up anyone who could mm-hmm. potentially be a threat yeah and it's, Unless it's really directly sad targeting asians yeah because a lot of the individuals who were rounded up um were you know, canadian you know by birth so it's like you're not even targeting oh. Wow. Yeah, you know, that also ties into and the jumping even 40, 50 years ahead to the murder of uh, Vincent Chin in the United States. So my understanding of that situation is 
Mm-hmm. Um, this was a uh, man who identified as Chinese and who worked at a Chrysler plant in um, Detroit, like a um, car motor plant. And I think there were two white men who I, I don't, I'm not sure if they were laid off, but um, this man essentially was beaten by those two white men because he was essentially blamed for them being laid off because of the um, the success of the Japanese, um, Japanese. kind of motor industry. Yeah. And he was seen as kind of a proxy for that, even though he wasn't even identifying as Japanese. So mm-hmm. that's where the stereotypes too is very harmful. It's just like all Asian are the same. It's all your fault. And then you have very horrible stories like this where this man had nothing to do with anything and he's, his life was ended and his family, his life was changed forever. And yeah. interesting when when you talk about this Vincent Chin incident. Um, so these white men had been laid off, so their economic prosperity is being threatened. And so it's again that power and access to resources. When you mm. feel there's a threat, then it's let's you know crack down on all, everyone who is the other, everyone who may be trying to threaten our position of privilege. Yeah, very much so. And it's that's a very good example that you brought up, Gordon. And it's I think it really exemplifies the, this this idea mm. of scapegoating right mm-hmm. um which really plays not only in um you know like anti-asian racism but just you know, xenophobia and kind of um very strong nationalist mm. sentiments and you know we've seen you know we're, we're seeing this right now with whether it's with covid or with previous epidemics or pandemics um, you know, we've seen, for example, during the 9-11 incident um, in the United States, how afterwards, you know, the complete, I guess, the discord completely shifted to, um, you know, any Muslim individual. Right. You band together against like a common enemy almost that you perceive as a common enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Entering year two of this pandemic, um, you know, we've seen every everything mm. under the rainbow, if any, you know. No, it's it's it literally like anything that that could have has happened. happened no, yeah. it seemed to have happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so um, I guess in your in your in your opinion, like what 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 do you think are some of the guess, causes or um, factors that have mm-hmm. kind of exacerbated this? Because you know we've like like I mentioned earlier with my own example, like I've experienced and I continue to experience racism. You know whether it's in the workplace, uh, in the community, but it all seems to be very. Mm-hmm. covert you know um very behind the behind the uh, the scenes kind of thing but with with covid everything kind of you know is put on a table and very in your face yeah yeah i think even just if i think about an example before covid and then you know transition that to during covid i remember i won't say what workplace it was but i work with um someone who's of asian descent and i remember the gentleman um, when he came in to access services was basically like, hey, um, can you tell tell that oriental lady that um, I need something or whatever? And I was like, you know, I, I'm the only one. There's two of us in the store at that time. And you could have simply just referred to them as can you tell the lady um, or whatever called by the profession. There was no need for that. He attempt to even put a racial identifier out there um maybe you're ignorant to the fact that that could be offensive to a lot of um, populations but it wasn't even necessary in that scenario so just to even understand that that and that's what we were talking about will like that covert implicit thing that 
um that came from an implicit place that where the person didn't even maybe they didn't even realize that's a very offensive thing to even say and you know that mm-hmm. covid-19 comes now where um very prominent people now have normalized that that's okay i always say to you you know to people sometimes you have thoughts right? that's why we a lot of us are blessed with the ability to think you have thoughts and then you check them you realize that they're not very good thoughts incorrect and then you kind of squish it right that's normal the fact that you have a racist thought that comes up and you're able to deal with it right away doesn't mean you're a horrible person okay you just have to realize it was wrong and you don't let it see the light of day so now when you have covid-19 that comes and it's just it's okay to you know giving a voice to the voiceless and in this case the voiceless you know rightly so should continue to remain voiceless because it's very oppressive and harmful things that they have to say in that case now they have a voice and they realize that there's not a lot of repercussions especially if you talk about United States with hate speech hate speech is technically basically protected protected under um the freedom of speech um you know so technically you can you know spread hateful speech and then hateful speech then breeds that you know more discrimination prejudice acts of violence and we know in in even researching this topic um a hate crime is a very specific term which is it seems like it's very hard to prove and get people prosecuted on a hate crime so there's a lot of challenges for sure taking that a step further when you're having the former president of the united states saying the things he did calling um it the wuhan virus or the chinese virus he has a big platform and his voice and his sound bites are going across the news across media and you know if you're a citizen of that country or even you're hearing this from other countries you're going to say okay uh, maybe someone with authority said this maybe this is true maybe this is what i should do maybe i should call it and it gets propagated in that way so it's very important to consider that but as we see it doesn't just stop with the US, the former us president this is being used um across several leaders and politicians across the world mhm yeah that's that's a really good point it's like it really shows how um there are for a lot of people i'm sure you know i'm sure there are some people out there who really just don't have the the access to the information or whatever and when they hear like essentially the highest the person of highest authority in the most developed nation in the world you know kind of utilizing these mm-hmm. these racist statements and making these these accusations then you know it's it's exactly like you said Rashan it's it, it's almost they almost feel like they're it's it's like a yeah. a pass you know it's if if they yeah. said it why can't i you know it's But you know what i think that's yeah. understating it a bit because as i mentioned before people make mistakes unfortunately that's something baked into our human existence um maybe it was an implicit bias maybe that's how they truly feel the reality is numerous times like you mentioned Lashan the president was told that this is a very dangerous type of language to be using and he refused because it was being done intentional crossing out on his briefings and renaming it like i want people to know this is where it came from and it's all your fault that was the the message he was saying i wouldn't even call it a covert hidden message that's what it really people refer to it as dog whistle that wasn't even a dog whistle it was just a whistle um right so there's a lot of intent there like the worst types of racism is when there's the the hurt with the intent behind it um and that's that those ones are harder and more dangerous to combat yeah um 
No, I think that's a, that's a very good point. It's and referring it to it mm-hmm. as as the whistle, as you did, Gordon. I think that's uh, really hits a nail on the head there. Um, you know, it's it really isn't yeah. anything covert um, at, at that point. You know, um, and I think shifting our 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 direction here a bit. Um, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about this. So I, I recently kind of um, came came across this this issue when researching the topic. Um, you know about anti-Asian racism versus, you know, the myth of Asian privilege, right? Um, mm-hmm. And for me, it's, it's very, it was very interesting kind of, um, you know, through my research, it showed, you know, there were many studies and you know, reports that sh- which showed that um, pre-pandemic and, you know, pre kind of um, the, the recent events mm-hmm. that have occurred against the Asian community, um, the dominant discourse was that Asians were less, you know, it's it's less about Asians and racism and Asians, you know, being the victims of racism and more about Asians being being privileged, you know, the Asians having privilege, um, you know, things like that. And you know, the, I think the especially in the U.S. and I, I would assume even so in Canada to some extent that the Asian community and I'm speaking broadly Asian here. Um, is identified as you know, the model minority or the the model community. Um, you know, have uh, is this a term that the folks here are familiar with? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and the more you dig yeah. deeper into it, the yeah. more problematic you see the the word that term is. Mm-hmm. It really is a myth. Yeah, yeah. The, for the model minority, it's it's uh, it's clearly a term that's you know, mm-hmm. coined by mm-hmm. those in power, right? By the you know, the, the dominant, by kind of. Um, your right. your privileged you know white people because they they're the they're the majority and so the term model minority refers to as you know the minority group that should be considered almost the the standard in which all other minority gr- groups right. strive to be and so in this case um, the Asian community is considered that be- where you know by their hard work and by their you know efforts and, and etc they have gotten to a point or a place in society um, and that and that everything that they've done is by their own merit and so every other minority group who hasn't hit hit that 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 level should should you know essentially pick up pick up your game yeah so even i have to be honest i until i researched i mean i was familiar with the term i wasn't sure exactly kind of how the term got coined or developed and you 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 almost assume then oh it's something that um, the Asian community kind of put out there. They're very proud that they're able to, you know, achieve success. You know, put your head down, so to speak, and then move through all these challenges and not complain too much. All those little stereotypical things that go out there. But really, it was, from my understanding, it was um, a piece written by William Peterson in 1966, and essentially it was highlighting the success story of a Japanese family, um, you know, immigrating. 20 mm-hmm. years and then I think they became a very successful family so the piece was put out there it was first uh, kind of a look how good um, Japanese immigrants are then it became um, Asian in general and then but when they when you when you dig deep into it this came out around the same time as um, the civil rights movement in the 60s so what it, it was really mm-hmm. what it really was designed to do um, is be propaganda so it was more it turned into Hey, you black people who are very upset about what's going on. Look at these Asians 
um, who have came here and not complained or did anything hectic like what your guys are doing. Why can't you do that? So now that takes the focus of attention now off the white supremacists, the white people in power, and then in turn then pits um, black communities and Asian communities against each other because of that tension and that reality where none, none of them were complicit right. even in that narrative in the first place. Mm-hmm. So then it's everybody against the marginalized right. groups against each Fighting other. Fighting for limited resources. Rather than everybody against right. white supremacy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that we see that today too. The same rhetoric continues today even when we talk about um, trying to build awareness about anti-Asian racism. We hear complaints um, or we hear people comparing to protests last summer with Black Lives Matter. Or we hear, um, you know, indigenous communities, people will say, oh, well, what about them? Well, what about them? All these what about isms. But it's like, it's the same goal overall, which is um, dismantling white supremacy. Um, But people in power can benefit a lot from distractions of saying, well, actually, we aren't your enemy. It's that group over there that that's causing this problem um and so i think it's good that we bring it up so that we can stay focused and yes right now we are focusing on anti-asian racism but other communities are not threats right. to each other and then if you think of just the the rodney mm-hmm. king riots in the 90s it was the police you know mm-hmm. beating up a black man and it turned into there. almost like a race war in very deprived communities yeah. where you have you know there's people of asian descent black communities and then white people essentially sit there eating popcorn right so it's just something we have to realize that is designed to pit people against each other where there's really no this narrative is not coming from those communities themselves it's from the people in power mm-hmm. yeah and and i guess another thing that uh, i came across as well was you know when you when you think of this idea of this model community or this model minority maybe some people might think that it's a good thing oh wow um you know this group is um overachieving and like they're very hard working but like with that the same kind of idea um um, in line with that comes with the idea that you know they're not these individuals are not capable of creativity or have motivate um emotional intelligence and that also leads to a problem because it very much prevents them from obtaining these higher organizational leadership positions and there's many studies that kind of show that you know these asian americans aren't um a part of the you know aren't ceos of different organizations and they don't have that higher level position because of these model um, right. minority kind of narratives and stereotypes preventing that from even right. putting you them worked into hard consideration. you've done well be so satisfied with what you have mm-hmm. move on that kind of undertone mm-hmm. to it very much so we've seen a clear increase in in xenophobic ten, um ide- idea all ideas um and kind of the, the growth of uh, ultra nationalist um sentiments across the world um you know it's and it's not just you know as much as the asian um the asian community is a target it's i i, I personally think that it's all vulnerable populations um often just get branded as the scapegoat right so you know we've seen yes um in in europe during the early phases of the pandemic you know places like italy spain um, the uk etc where um, you know people of asian descent east east asian descent um, or whatever you know, being singled out but then you also you know moving to let's say places like the middle east you have um, already vulnerable populations like the migrant workers like um you mm-hmm. know 
people from South Asia who who are there for you know for for work be you no know, the kind of people pointing the fingers and being like okay these people are the source of you know, of the virus and it's it's very much um, like a global issue um, and it's just kind of like a, like a humankind issue yep and just a, a case in point for that I won't say so there was a restaurant in London Ontario that had a sign up a couple months ago um, um, that said I'm gonna quote here we love Chinese people we hate the genocide and China virus your coming I guess as communist government has inflicted on us so when you talk about xenophobia i mean you can put that right beside it the definition in a dictionary you know i think for me when i see when i see messages like this um you know i also look and i also start thinking about what the impacts they these may, might have for mm-hmm. future generations right it's like yeah. you know imagine if you're kind of a youth or you know, a younger person growing up um right now and all you hear on you know whether it's on social media or even just as you're walking around on signs is just that this, this very you know strong yeah. hatred towards asian yeah. canadians um it's 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 you're at a stage where you know things like this sticks you know and yeah absolutely it's it's just it, it just, and i think it just snowballs into Right. problems in the future but you know why it's, it's problematic for two reasons mm-hmm. right so it's problematic because and it's i think that restaurant's actually near a couple schools by the way so that's problematic in of itself so it's problematic because yeah. you know if you're of chinese or asian descent you can t- internalize that in a negative way that's you know not very not good for your well-being and then if you're a white person you can internalize that to perpetuate it even more because it's you know maybe this is feeding in, into a bias that you already have and then you're then able to that gives you a little bit of a liberty to then feel and say and act in a way that confirms these harmful beliefs and then the people who it's targeted against um, are scared for their lives essentially and then you get that further divide so it's problematic in two ways yeah mm-hmm. and especially with covid i think um just creating that element of fear um surrounding Asian communities is especially problematic because in many places too, a lot of you know racialized communities and specifically Asian communities are disproportionately affected by COVID. And so then it's like no one cares because you know you brought this virus here and in Alberta specifically, um, you know, the outbreaks in our meat plants have been some of the largest in North America. Mm-hmm. And one particular plant, um, they have a very large migrant worker population and specifically a large Filipino population. And, you know, unfortunately due to, you know, occupational hazards and all the things like that, um, it's just been a very um, prominent hotspot of COVID and a lot of their employees have been impacted. And rather than, you know, the general society, you know, showing sympathy, support, trying to solve this issue, instead, the people who are sick have then been blamed for it. It's like, well, you brought this virus here. We don't care that you're suffering. And I'm like, yeah. how did we get here? And at the same time, like I said earlier, why are we surprised? Like we have shown from time that um, these stereotypes and policy changes are so harmful. 
Mm-hmm. One one of the things that that brings up, especially in light of COVID nineteen and kind of bringing together this anti Asian racism element to it, it's the idea that in the news media you see so many different stories. And like I don't know if you've all have seen the videos of elderly Asian gentlemen being mm-hmm. pushed or um, women being pushed and assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just minding their own business, and you have an, a, an assault take place where they get pushed and just punched and beaten down, and You know, when these type of things um, occur, when people are watching this, they're just they don't feel safe. And when you're talking about COVID nineteen, and you know, you're 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 wondering if you can access health services or go for a walk, you you might feel scared, right? You can't do the regular things that you want to do, and this leads to more isolation. And you know, even on top of that, I came across this term. It's called vicarious trauma, mm-hmm. and it's this idea that you know when you're You're exposed to these constant stories and videos about people who look like you, share similar traits, um, racial groups, ethnic groups, and even part of the same gender. You you start to kind of, um, you know, there's detrimental effects to that. Internalize it's affecting it. your mental health. Mm-hmm. Exactly, you internalize it. There's mental health consequences that arise from that, and that kind of propagates this whole idea and uh, the feeling of not feeling safe and, um, you know, being scared to access. Regular services in the community because this is what's going on. Racial trauma is real for sure. Yeah, mm. you know, with COVID, you know, still being active as ever. Um, you know, I'm I'm very, very much, you know, very cautious about the future post post COVID. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's um, you know the, the the growth of anti-immigrant sentiments, whether the um. The growth of ultra nationalist ideologies, or all sorts of these ideas, um, you know, it's 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 going to be a problematic um, future, mm-hmm. um, to say the least. And you know, I wonder, I, re- I really wonder. Um, this so this this is something that really, that kind of came to my mind last year when when um, you know er- early on in the pandemic, when um, at least here in Canada, I think there were reports of you know, things like masks, PPE. Not you know, not having enough supplies because you know, Canada got most of its supply from places like China, uh, you know, in, in, in places in Asia where the pandemic was, you know, was starting off and going really hard. It, is, it was the idea of um, whether countries will revert back to you know very isolationist um, kind of policies. It, it, we're kind of seeing some some. Snippets of it here and there with um with with a vaccine rollout, hmm. where of you know countries vaccine nationalism. That's literally racism, mm-hmm. but like at a geopolitical level. Not even like you know we talk about socio ecological model. Maybe there's that sixth thing where it's like geopolitical, <laughs> because that's uh like the power play where you can have a you you know United States as a power player. You know, allocating resources, shifting resources, affecting entire continents—that's something at a scale that I don't know. If even if you know, just linking it back to public health, I don't even know if something that we're even equipped to even deal with. It also though brings to mind um, the the way we exploit mm. a lot of our labor, a lot of our like we outsource any everything in Canada. Really, what is how often do we make things here anyway? We outsource everything exploiting people paying like next to nothing um and at the same time like well when you mentioned when there's a crisis when there's a pandemic um it's so easy then to have these narratives um that 
that fuel more xenophobic sentiments. But I, I wonder too, how much of that is like our own fault for exploiting mm -hmm. lower income countries to create, to make everything for us. And then, um, and that's another, another topic of discussion, but it's just another layer of this yeah. power. <laughs> no, just, uh, but do you think of this might be a little bit more, um, maybe a you know, superficial example, but you know, a lot of what the PPE we use, <laughs> so you're, you don't want Asians in your country, but then you're going to use the PPE that they mm -hmm. make to protect you. So just, that's yeah. what I mean. Like you just have to, I know that like, you know, people function, people have different levels of education and all that stuff, but let's just, you know, you, maybe the first thing that comes your, to your head is not the right thing. You know, look, there's, you know, you, there's chances are you have a phone or internet do some research talk to someone and like let's not do the easy thing the easy thing is to just be scared of all asians because something came from wuhan like that's the easy thing to do you know the the, the thing you should do is ask yourself why did you know that something like the swine flu basically started in in north america um do you want the same kind of energy if, if you know when the shoe's on the other foot so you guys got to think through these things as human being and not just do yeah. the easy Thing and pick the easy thing to do yeah and have conversations if you hear someone uh friends family or if you see something in public if it's safe um step in say something because your voice as cliche as it sounds does make a difference and so if you're able to just interfere and disrupt even one act of racism and specifically in this context anti-asian racism that does make a difference yeah um one you know, small sliver of hope um, and one small pos I guess, mm. positivity I don't, I don't even want to call it a positivity because it's you know still in the context of right. anti-Asian racism that, that I've kind of noticed is um, at least in the US it really I think this, this, this recent wave has really brought right. a lot of communities together um, and you know mm -hmm. just you know as, as problematic as it is um, to generalize all Asians there's also still some strength in, you know, kind of falling under the same umbrella and, you know, along with other marginalized populations like the black community, like the, like the Latinx community, you're able to you know, really come together. And just like you said, Linda, um, work together to not, a, not, like, not with, it's not against one another, but against the system that's, you know, that's held us all here you know, at yeah. the, at, you know, and, restricted any sort of growth or anything like that and um something that really kind of tugged in my heartstrings um was recently <laughs> in uh, in the west coast at least in the u.s there's been a lot of um, organ organized kind of initiatives of young younger um, asian american or in pacific islander you know youth or you know young people who've kind of banded together to almost provide kind of a like a safety patrol for the, these elderly people you know, um, mm. and just really coming together as a community to keep them safe. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's it was it was definitely um, you know really really emotional to see, and especially just mm -hmm. um, kind of the that that generational gap kind of being closed, and really you know, realizing that we're all here together and fighting, you know, to fighting fighting as as one and for the same for the same cause. Yeah, I completely not you see i can't say it much better than what you what you've just said i think the key thing that i've noticed as well is that all the little schemes are being kind of uncovered um people are more aware now of 
what the system kind of intentionally does to put people against each other and keep people oppressed so instead of um Mm -hmm. you know those misdirections and distractions hopefully don't work as much we kind of stay focused on the goal hey um white supremacy which is basically just saying the field is not level for everyone it's not saying that if you're white you're just an inherently bad person and you you don't have Mm -hmm. any kind of moral compass or anything it just the society is set up so that it's not a level playing field for everybody and um, i'm seeing now hopefully that you know people of color now are working toward just leveling so um fighting for black causes is the same thing as fighting for all minority causes and you know fighting for against anti-asian racism is also going to further the further the black cause and we're seeing a lot um a more shared collective goal towards like just advancing all peoples that are system systemically oppressed and i think that's my hope coming from Mm -hmm. um going out of covid19 into hopefully a better world um unfortunately the way our governments and our societies are set up change does not happen without evidence Mm -hmm. Anecdotes mm. don't help, and sensational news stories only last for the, however, 24-hour news news cycle. And so, there's this website called COVIDRacism.ca where they are collecting reports of racism in the wake of COVID, and it's predominantly anti-Asian racism that we're seeing. But every anyone can report a racist incident that they see. Um, and so, I heard of this through the. Um, Chinese Canadian National Council, the Toronto chapter. And so they have been doing a lot of work to one, bring awareness to how COVID has been racialized and two, to help gather evidence to bring this to light. And so if anyone um, is witness to or experiences a racist attack in Canada, please go to this website, covidracism.ca, and you can then report it. And this data can be collected um, so that we can track what's happening. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.